All right, turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 1. We're going to look this morning at verses 39 to 56. Luke 1, 39 to 56. We began last week talking about the arrival of the king, and what we're doing is kind of walking through the story that Luke tells us of the arrival of Jesus. And each week just kind of noticing a number of different things in the passage that give us a hint as to what Jesus came to do, particularly things that are connected with the idea of him being the king. Typically, it's Matthew's gospel that is known for presenting Jesus as the king. But Luke also gives us a lot of important information that helps us understand what this king came to do. So last week, there were five things that we looked at. This week in this passage, there's going to be four particular um, ideas that we're going to look at, some more directly connected to the idea of Jesus as king, some a little more loosely connected, but all of them important. So in a sense, it's kind of like four mini messages put together from this passage in Luke. Let's go ahead and begin with reading it. And you may want to mark this passage. There's going to be a couple of places I'll ask you to turn this morning, but you will always kind of be coming back to Luke chapter 1. All right, Luke 1, starting in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. The first thing I want to point out from that passage is that because Jesus has royal status, he deserves tribute. If you noticed in verse 43, Elizabeth explains this reaction that she has, and she kind of exclaims, why, is, why do I get this blessing? And what she specifically says is, why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? That's an interesting phrase, the mother of my Lord. Elizabeth recognizes that this baby that Mary is carrying is the king, is the Lord. So there's this recognition, even in Elizabeth's words, 
of the status that Jesus has. He's the Lord. If we were to go over, and by the way, Mary and Elizabeth are cousins. So picture your cousin and having this kind of reaction to something that God was doing with your cousin. Uh, for us, these are Bible characters that were 2,000 years removed from, but this would be tough, right? I mean, this is someone you know, and you have to have a measure of faith to believe what God is doing. And we're specifically told that it's the Holy Spirit that brings about this response in Elizabeth. Um, Jesus is the one who holds the scepter and the staff of the tribe of Judah. Now, I have to make a correction. Last week, I said something in error. I was debating between two different Old Testament passages that I wanted to bring to your attention, one last week and one this week, and I, explained, I gave the wrong background for the passage I ended up using. So, last week, when we talked about Jesus in terms of um, the scepter, in terms of his royal status, I mentioned a verse from Numbers, it's Numbers 24, uh, 17. That's actually in the context of an oracle given by Balaam. What I explained last week, I'm actually going to give you that verse this week. That's Genesis 49 and verse 10. This is when Jacob is blessing his children. And he, um, he indicates something about each of them in the, the words that he's blessing them with. And as he speaks over Judah, he says this. This is Genesis 49 and verse 10. He says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So the scepter won't depart from Judah. Judah is going to be the kingly line. They hold the scepter. And the staff. And that's appropriate because David is in the line of Judah, and David is the shepherd king. So we have the scepter and the staff that are kind of symbolic of the rule of Israel's rightful king. And Jesus comes along and he's going to have the scepter and the staff. He's the good shepherd and he's the true king. He's, he's in the line of Judah. But it's also interesting to note, it says the scepter won't depart, the ruler's staff, until tribute comes to him. There's this idea inherent in kingship that the king deserves tribute. He deserves honor, gifts, because of who he is. And if you were to go over to the story as Matthew tells it, we see the arrival of the wise men, these royal visitors from the east. And what do they do? They bring gifts. And they're not cheap gifts. They bring these gifts that are fitting for a royal person to receive. They're honoring Jesus as the king. So because Jesus has royal status, he deserves tribute. Jesus has an inheritance and a kingdom. Sometimes Jesus' inheritance is spoken of as the saints themselves. Like we are his inheritance. But sometimes it's also spoken of as something that we share in. So he receives an inheritance and we benefit from it because he is our king. And what belongs to the king then is a blessing to the people. He's our representative. Um, maybe an anti-example would help there. You think about 
when Israel is in Egypt in slavery, you have a king, a pharaoh, and he demands tribute. He demands work. He demands the Israelites, all that they do benefits him. He doesn't give to them until... God intervenes when God defeats Pharaoh. Then what happens to the treasures of Egypt? They're given to God's people as they're leaving. There's gold and silver and jewels that are just like handed to the Israelites as they're leaving. That's what actually enables them to be able to build the tabernacle in the wilderness. And so all of this wealth, all of the the tribute actually is now given to God's people. Well, earthly kings don't tend to give to their people very generously. There are exceptions, but oftentimes they gather things for themselves. But this king will be different. This Messiah king, this King Jesus, who truly deserves all the tribute, he truly deserves all the gifts. When he receives those gifts, those gifts then benefit his people. So, The inheritance is spoken of, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1, when it's talking about all the blessings that we receive as God's people. Verse 11, in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. In verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. So at this present moment, we get the Holy Spirit, and that's a guarantee of the inheritance that we one day will receive. And then verse 18, the hope of our calling is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So that idea of Jesus' inheritance benefiting his people is there in these New Testament letters. Let me just give you one more. This is Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So here's an inheritance that you as God's people receive, but look what it's immediately connected to. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Why do we get the inheritance? Because we are part of the kingdom and the king who deserves the inheritance is our representative. So we benefit from that because we're part of the kingdom in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How do we get redemption? How do we get forgiveness of sins? Our king earned it and gave it to us. So all that he deserves ultimately also benefits his people. Jesus' royal status shows that he deserves tribute. So we sing at Christmas, so bring him incense, gold and myrrh. Come, peasant, king, to own him. Doesn't matter who you are, bow at, at the feet of this king. The king of kings, salvation brings. So he, he deserves the gift, but he's giving to his people. Let loving hearts enthrone him. Because Jesus has royal status, he deserves tribute, and because we are his people, we share in that inheritance. Second thing, Jesus fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. If you're in Luke 1 still, take a look at verses 54 and 55. This is the end of Mary's song. We say song because we've turned it into a song. We sing it, uh, and we'll sing it after the message this morning at some point. 
but it's a prayer or a poem or something along those lines. And the last two verses of it, verses 54 and 55, say, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So Mary recognizes that what is happening now in the birth of Jesus is a fulfillment of promises that God gave long ago to Abraham. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis 15. Just hold your place in Luke 1. Turn back to Genesis 15. <clears throat> in Genesis 15, um, just a few chapters before this, God has called Abraham. He has <clears throat> introduced himself to Abraham. And now in 15, he's giving Abraham a very important promise. <clears throat> he's going to make a covenant with Abraham. Genesis 15 let me read for you the first six verses. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. <clears throat> so there we have this promise that God gives regarding descendants that Abraham is going to have. <clears throat> he says, look up in the sky, look at the number of stars, you're going to have more descendants than that. Now, we live in a place that is fairly lit up at night, and so we can't see a lot of the stars. Maybe you've been to a place where you can see a lot of stars. Um, even this week, a couple of our guys went out hunting, and they got out early enough that not too many lights were on, they were out away from things, and you could see a ton of stars. Well, back in Abraham's day, there's no lights at night to pollute the sky, and so you have many, many stars that are visible. And God says, just look, just try counting them. If you ever tried that, you know you can't do it. It's really hard to keep track across the sky anyway, but there's just so many stars when you can see so, you know, when it's dark out like that, and God's communicating to Abraham, look, you're going to have so many descendants, it's innumerable. It's like the sand of the seashore. So this promise is given, but Abraham is struggling with the idea that he doesn't have any offspring of his own. And he's getting old, and Sarah's old. And we know the story, Abraham comes up with his own solution, and so he takes... Sarah's handmaid and has a son with her named Ishmael. And God says, that's not the plan. There's a son that is the son of promise. I gave you a promise and I keep my promises, God says. And there's a son who's going to be the result of the promise that I gave you. And you need to believe. And in their old age, Abraham and Sarah do have a son named Isaac. And the story, as it goes on, of course, 
their descendants grow and multiply. And we know when, um, for instance, Jacob and his family go down into Egypt, there's 70 of them. And a couple hundred years later, there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them as they come out of Egypt. God's answering his promise. He's multiplying the nation. But the physical nation of Israel was never the ultimate meaning of that promise. There was a spiritual reality that was greater. Turn over with me to Galatians chapter 3. Okay, so flip back into the New Testament to the letter to the churches in Galatia. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And here, Paul is explaining this promise to Abraham and what its ultimate significance is. Galatians chapter 3, and look with me, I'm going to start at verse 6, because this is the verse that Paul is quoting from what we just read in Genesis 15. So if you have any doubts as to whether or not Paul is talking about the same thing, Paul literally is quoting the verse we just read in Genesis 15, okay? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So his faith is counted as righteousness. Verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel, the good news, beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you are Abraham's true descendant, a recipient of the promise, if you have faith. If you have faith in Jesus, that's how all the nations will be blessed. The nations aren't blessed simply because of the physical nation of Israel. The nations are blessed because of Jesus, who's the one that those promises were ultimately focused on. And all those who are in him are those who are of faith. Those are the true descendants then of Abraham. So God keeps this promise. God says to Abraham that he would be his shield and reward. And God protected Abraham in his journeys. And Abraham didn't see the ultimate fulfillment of the promise, but he did see the beginning of it in the birth of Isaac, who was the child of promise, okay, uh, the result of faith. And when we come down to Jesus... You can think of it this way. Jesus protects his people and is his people's reward as well. How does Jesus protect his people? When Jesus goes to the cross, his broken body is what protects us from the wrath of God. Jesus took that on himself. He protects his people. And he himself is our reward. So as we saw with the first Advent candle last week, God's plan is certain. God fulfilled his promise to Abraham. And so we sing, and this is a song we're going to sing, as Father Abraham rejoiced to hear him say, so every tribe and nation will be blessed in him today. It's a result of that fulfillment of the promise that God gave to Abraham. 
So in Jesus, God's promises to Abraham are fulfilled to all those who have faith in Jesus. They're blessed. The people from every tribe and nation who have faith in Jesus are blessed because of the promise God gave to Abraham. And Mary recognizes that in her prayer, that this is the fulfillment of it. All right, the third, excuse me, the third thing. Jesus brings liberation from oppressors. Back in Luke chapter 1, look with me again at Mary's song or prayer. And look at verses 51 and 52. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. The rulers of this world bring oppression. As we said earlier, there are exceptions. But think about who's in charge in our world today. Can you think of any rulers or government officials today who are oppressive? I'll give you a minute to think about it. You don't have to think long and hard to see that at work in our world today. It's nothing new. We've always had rulers who take advantage of their position and their power, who oppress. You know, when God gave his um, instructions and warnings in Deuteronomy about kings, he gives, Deuteronomy 17, he gives these warnings about what kings will tend to do and what his kings should not do. They shouldn't amass wealth for themselves. They shouldn't amass horses. They shouldn't oppress their people. And yet... By the time you hit king number three in Israel's history, Solomon, it reads like a description of doing exactly the opposite of what God said in Deuteronomy 17. Solomon does exactly all the things that God says a king should not do. Even in his great wisdom, Solomon abuses his position and his power, and he amasses great wealth for himself. He amasses horses, and by the end of his reign, he is very oppressive, of his people. Isaiah chapter 9 gives a prophecy that is important for understanding how the the promised king would be different. So turn with me to Isaiah 9. Isaiah chapter 9. These are familiar verses that we often read at Christmas, and there's a reason for that. Isaiah chapter 9. And um, I'm going to read two different parts of Isaiah 9, so just stay there with me. But let's start with the first four verses. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So the rod of the oppressor is broken when this prophecy is fulfilled. And, you know, if we could turn to the other account of the birth of Jesus, the one that Matthew gives us, 
he finishes the account, tells a little bit about Jesus' childhood, and then he jumps into the ministry of Jesus. And in chapter 4, we have Jesus um, beginning with the temptation, and we have these verses quoted. And Matthew says that this is fulfilled in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And then, as soon as Matthew tells us that, as soon as Matthew says this is a fulfillment of what Isaiah said, the next verse, Jesus begins announcing the arrival of his kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. Do you see the connection? Isaiah's prophecy was about the evil rulers being overthrown, the oppressors being broken. And Jesus says, the true king is here. All of those rulers will be dethroned. Jesus' liberating reign begins in his ministry here on earth. And it continues to grow. There's going to be a day when all enemies are eliminated. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that. And his reign will be eternal, everlasting. If you're still there in Isaiah 9, look now at verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, <clears throat> to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jesus is the final and eternal king. So the increase of his government, that word increase, it's like the old, um, it's more of an old English usage of like, for farming, the increase meaning the abundance, the, the blessings, the benefits of his government. There will be no end. It's the flourishing of his rule and reign. It's an eternal reign. So imagine replacing our current rulers with a perfect king who would rule in perfect justice and righteousness forever. Our true enemies... Satan and sin and death are beaten back under Jesus's universal lordship. He wins that battle at the cross. That victory is being unfolded throughout human history and it will be an eternal and perfect rule and reign. That's the king that Mary is talking about. When we recognize the lordship and the kingdom of Christ, we are relativizing, downplaying the rule of all other earthly rulers. Jesus is Lord and they are not. Jesus' reign is eternal and theirs is but a moment. And so we sing, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. The last thing that I want you to see from Luke 1 this morning is that Jesus is the one who sends the Holy Spirit. Now, as you look at Luke 1 and you see, if you pay attention, 
the Holy Spirit is everywhere present. It's almost like um, if you're not paying attention, you miss it, but the Holy Spirit is there, ever present in the story. Elizabeth, Zechariah, John, all of them are empowered by the Holy Spirit. So let me just show you. Verse 41 of Luke chapter 1. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's how she has the understanding that she does. Now, we didn't read the rest of the chapter, but if you were to go down to verse 67, it says, this is talking about John now, the baby that Elizabeth had, and, and John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. So then he, he then speaks these words of God because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you come down to verse 80 at the end of the chapter, and the child grew and became strong in spirit. And we know that John was empowered by the Holy Spirit in his ministry as he went out. Jesus's ministry is also empowered by the Holy Spirit. Maybe we don't often think of Jesus um, we, we, we tend to think of Jesus as being self-sufficiently empowered of his, of his own self. But the Bible is really clear that the Holy Spirit empowers Jesus' ministry. The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. We saw that last week in the conception of Jesus. When we get to Luke chapter 4 and verse 1, if you were to turn over there, this is the beginning of Jesus' temptation. And it says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. So Jesus is filled with the Spirit and he's led by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads him. The Holy Spirit protects and defends him. And throughout the Gospels, as you read the story of Jesus, you see that Jesus' ministry is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Then when you get to the end of the Gospels, Jesus dies on the cross, he rises again, he ascends into heaven, he's seated on the throne, and what does he do? Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, Jesus pours out the Spirit. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, we're told the disciples were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then, in verses 16 and 17, as Peter is preaching and he's explaining the miraculous things that are going on there amongst the disciples in Jerusalem, G Peter says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Okay, so not just on one individual for them to give a prophecy, not just on a few at a time for a particular thing. But all of God's people receive the Holy Spirit now since Pentecost. In Acts 2, verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So all of God's people receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who sends the Spirit. Christmas is a spirit-empowered event. Elizabeth, Zechariah, John, Mary, Jesus himself. And Jesus would be the one whose ministry is perfectly empowered by the Spirit. And because he is the king, because he's enthroned in heaven, 
and he gives gifts to his people, the gift that he gives primarily is the gift of the Spirit. So this one who is the king, who gives to his people, gives the gift of the Spirit. And so we sang, it's a lesser known Christmas song, but we sang it this morning from the squalor of a borrowed stable. And we began with this, from the squalor of a borrowed stable, by the Spirit and a virgin's faith, to the anguish and the shame of scandal came the Savior of the human race. The kingdom of Christ begins by the power of the Spirit. And it continues today in you and me by the power of the Spirit. So what we've seen here in Luke this morning, because Jesus has royal status, he deserves tribute. And because we are his people, we share in his inheritance. Second, in Jesus, God's promises to Abraham are fulfilled as those who have faith in Jesus are blessed, people from every tribe and nation. Number three, when we recognize that eternal, everlasting lordship and kingdom of Christ, we are relativizing, downplaying the rule of all other earthly rulers. Jesus brings down oppressive rulers. Jesus is the eternal Lord and they are not. And finally, Christmas is a spirit-empowered event. The kingdom of Christ begins by the power of the Spirit, and it continues today by the power of the Spirit. As I said last week, when you read the Christmas story, it's very easy for us to just kind of narrowly focus in on that event itself, and we treat it kind of in a nostalgic way. You know, we have the, the quiet manger scene, and maybe you picture it with snow gently falling, and you know, we, we picture the miracle of, of the birth of Jesus and the angels and the shepherds. And, but we need to not disconnect it from the bigger story. Christmas serves a very important purpose in the plan and the, and the will of God. In the fullness of time, God sent his son. And he sent him for a reason. And this king accomplishes great things. For his people. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you again for the words that you have given us in Scripture, uh, particularly this morning in Luke chapter 1, as we read of, of Elizabeth's reaction and we read Mary's song or her prayer, and we hear just the, um, the many hints and overtones that are in those words of what you were accomplishing in sending your Son. We thank you that that this is the way that you chose to fulfill your plan and your promise. We thank you that we can look at it and see that you're a God who keeps his promises. We thank you that we can look at this story and recognize that this is the birth of a king, and not just any king, but the true king, the eternal king, who rules in righteousness and justice and who gives generously to his people. So even as we give to each other at Christmas, may we do that in response to the, to the great gifts that you have given to us. We serve a generous God and we want to be generous people in response. We want to worship this eternal, everlasting, and wonderful King. In whose name we pray. Amen.
Would you stand?